You have your Bibles with you this morning. Turn with me to Romans. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 17 this morning as we do begin that, that new series on gospel shaped outreach. Gospel shaped outreach. Uh, and to, this morning's sermon is entitled Eager Evangelism. As we begin this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we study this, this subject over the course of the next couple of months, Lord, of evangelism, outreach, Lord, we recognize this morning that outreach is something that you have called us to. You commissioned us to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel, to see people come to faith in Christ. Father, as we ask that question this morning, how are we doing? I pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our hearts to see. Let us not be blinded by so many things. But let us truly see how we are doing. Lord, give us a heart to change where we are falling short. As the message is entitled this morning, Eager Evangelism, oh Lord, give us an eagerness. An eagerness to proclaim your name throughout the world. And see the lost come to know Jesus Christ. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we are looking at Romans chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. As we read that, I want to begin a little bit earlier than that. I'm going to go back to, to verse 8, but in our study we'll focus on 13 through 17. If you found your place there, please stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord first. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift uh, to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now here's our verse. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Amen. 
May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. And you may be seated. I want you to imagine for a moment that uh, I, I hired a painter to come paint my house. I want him to come paint the interior of my house. Uh, our, our walls in our house are, are right now, they're gray. And, and uh, say I wanted to hire a painter to come and brighten things up. And I wanted to, him to paint my walls red. Now Mike is already up there shaking his head. <laughs> but say I hired a painter to come paint my house, to paint the walls in my house red. And so then I go off on vacation, here's the key, you've got a week, I'll be gone, so just have the run of the house and and, uh, I'll see you when I get back. And so uh, Mary Beth and I, we take off, and Gabby, we take off on vacation. And we're gone for a whole week. Then as we're coming back home, anticipating this new new vibrant colors on the wall, this new red uh, throughout the house, I open the door and I look and... The walls are still gray. Hmm. I continue to walk on into the house, and everywhere I look, the walls are still that same gray. They are now. And now look on the living room wall. There above the couch, there's a, a beautiful portrait that's been painted and placed there on the wall. Man, that's just beautiful. That's wonderful. That's lovely. But why are my walls not red? So I call up the painter. Say, hey, Mr. Painter, I was just wondering. I came home today, and, and to my surprise, my walls are still gray. What, what happened? And he said, oh, well, you know what? Instead of painting your walls gray, I decided that you would much rather have a portrait. So I painted that portrait and hung it over your couch because I knew that you would love that. Oh, that portrait is lovely. That portrait is, is beautiful, a work of art, but I hired you to paint my walls. Now, do you think that I would actually pay that painter? And commend him for the work that he had done for me. I paid him to paint the walls, not paint a picture. Oh, the picture's lovely. The picture's great. The picture's beautiful. It it makes a a wonderful addition, but I paid him to paint my walls. Now think about that. In the church, quite often the church does a lot of great things. Wonderful things, beautiful things. But are they doing the right thing? Church, are we doing the right thing? You see, we can do a lot of wonderful things for God, just like that portrait. We could be painting a beautiful picture for God. Serving here, serving there, doing this, doing that. But is all of that, is that the right thing? Is that what God has called us to do? You see, because Scripture tells us what God has called us to do. Jesus, before he ascended on high, he said, Church, go! Make disciples of the nations! Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the ends of the world. You see, church, we can be doing a lot of great things, but not, being, not doing the one thing that God has commissioned us to do, sharing the gospel, taking the gospel to the lost. How are we doing as a church? How are we doing as a church, as a body here in Bastrop? Are we painting a portrait, a beautiful portrait, but failing to do what God has called us to do? I want you to ask that of your heart this morning. In fact, church, we ought to have an eagerness, an eagerness to evangelize, an eagerness to share the gospel. In fact, that's what we see in our passage this morning. As we look at this passage, we see this, and here's the sermon in a sentence. Every Christian should be an eager evangelist because of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Let me say that again. Every Christian, brothers and sisters, each and every one of you who are children of God, every Christian should be an eager, a willing evangelist because the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And today, through this sermon, through this message, I want to encourage each and every one of you to be an eager evangelist. When you leave here today, my hope is that you are encouraged. Whether you've been consumed by fear, whether you've just been, uh, become complacent, whatever it may be, my desire is that today you would leave here eager to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost in our community. As we look at this passage, I first want to direct your attention to the context of the passage. Paul here he is writing this letter. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. And Paul has never visited the church in Rome. He did not establish the church in Rome. I don't really know who established the church in Rome. Scripture doesn't tell us for sure who established the church there in Rome. But someone has gone and they have established a church there in Rome. And Paul, as we read, has, has heard about them. He has heard about the Christians there because of their faith. In verse 8, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, how is is it that the, the faith of this Roman church is being pronounced throughout the world? And, and by the way, that world there throughout the world is, is the Roman world, the known world to Paul at this point in time. That's what he's talking about here. He's not having the whole, con, or the whole globe in view, but he's talking about the, the world that he knows, the Roman world, the, the, the world that, and, that he was a part of in his day. He says, uh, your faith has been told throughout the world. I've heard about throughout the world. And, and how is their faith being told throughout the Roman world? Well, it is because the Romans have been sending out missionaries. They've been sending out missionaries, sending out evangelists to, to go throughout the Roman world, just like Paul has been doing to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like Priscilla and Aquila 
whom Paul met on his missionary journeys. They came from Rome bringing the good news as they were going with their life. And so Paul is commending them for their evangelistic zeal, for their love for the Lord and their desire to take the gospel out to the nations. And he says, I want to come to you. I want to come to you because I want to to harvest some fruit from among you. I want to preach the gospel there in Rome. And I want to see people respond to the gospel and come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I want to come to you for. And even at the end of the letter, he tells us, or he tells the church, and and after that, I'm going to go on to Spain. I'm going to stop, visit you for a while there in Rome, and then I'm going to go on to Spain, another place that hadn't heard the gospel. Paul is eager for evangelism. The Roman church is eager for evangelism. And Paul wants to encourage that all the more. In fact, the whole gospel uh, or the whole book of Romans is is just an an exposition on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his purpose is to encourage them, first of all, so that they would know, they would understand the, the fullness of the gospel, but also I think his desire is to continue to encourage them to, to go out with the gospel and proclaim it. And I want you to be eager. I want you to be willing and desiring to go out and proclaim the gospel to the lost this morning. And so as we look at this passage and we, we look into the verses that we're focusing on this morning, I want you to see this. I want you to see four reasons every Christian should be an eager evangelist. Four reasons every Christian, you, brother and sister, why you should be an eager evangelist. As we look at that then, I want you to see this. Uh, verse 15 is somewhat, the, the, it gives the, the purpose of all of this. It's the main proposition in this section of Scripture that we look at there. You see it begins, verse 15 begins with so or thus. That means Paul is, is saying this is because of that. Right? So what he has just said is based upon this proposition. So this proposition is the main proposition. He says, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is eager, just like we ought to be eager to proclaim the gospel. Now I want you to see this, because you don't necessarily catch this in the English text. But that word, that phrase there, preach the gospel, is not actually uh, two or three different words in the Greek. In fact, in fact the Greek there, uh, that word is euangelizo, euangelizo, one word, and it doesn't necessarily mean preach, as in I am up here preaching, right? It doesn't necessarily mean preach the gospel, But euangelizo means to proclaim the good news, to proclaim the gospel. All right, so you need to understand that. You need to see that. He means to proclaim the gospel. I am eager to proclaim the gospel to you, to share the good news to you also who are in Rome. And so why is Paul eager to proclaim the gospel there in Rome. Well, he begins, and we've got to back up a verse to see the first reason that he is eager to proclaim the gospel. 
In verse 14, he says, I am under obligation both to Greek and to barbarian, both to the wise and the foolish. And notice he says, I am under obligation. I am under obligation. Now, some might would object there and say, well, Paul is under obligation because of his call. He was called to be an apostle. He was called to be a preacher. He was called to be a missionary or an evangelist. But I don't think that is the case in this, in this instance. I don't think it's because of the call that he is under obligation, though that increases it all the more. It's not just because of the, the call in his life to be an apostle, an evangelist, that he is under obligation here. That word there, under obligation, uh, the, the Greek word behind it has two different kind of meanings. And they're, they're related, but they're, they're two somewhat different uh, meanings. First of all, this, this has that meaning of being a debtor. I'm in debt. I'm indebted. And so Paul is saying here, I am under debt. I am a debtor. I'm obligated because I am a, a debtor both to Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish. Now, this is seen over in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 12, and I'm going to back up just a little bit there uh, to verse, four, uh, verse 11. It says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors. It's the same Greek word. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And the implication is there that we are indebted to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. And why does Paul say there that he is a debtor? We are debtors to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit. And because of God's Spirit dwells in us. It's because of God's saving work in us, in our lives that we are debtors to live according to the Spirit. And I think we can say that same thing here in the first chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 14. We are debtors. Paul says, I am under obligation. I am a debtor. I am a debtor because of God's salvation in my own life, because of Jesus' sacrifice for my sins, because of the Holy Spirit dwelling in my body, I am a debtor to follow through with the Great Commission. I am a debtor to Christ to proclaim the gospel. Well, the second meaning here under, under this, under the word obligation, is a sense of a moral obligation. There's a sense of a moral obligation. And, and I think that sense works here as well. Paul is under a moral obligation. Now think about this. Think about if you are standing out on a shore, let's just use that, or you are out on a boat, and you come by and you see someone floating down the river, and they're struggling, they're drowning, and you have a life raft in your hand, you would be under moral obligation to toss out the lifeline. 
You would be under moral obligation. You have the ability to save a life. You have the equipment necessary to save a life. You would be under moral obligation to try your best to save that life, would you not? We have the message of life. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. By no other name will anyone be saved we are under moral obligation to take the gospel to the nations that's what they need before anyone can have eternal life they must hear the gospel therefore we are obligated we have a moral obligation to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the lost Dear friends, we are under obligation. Each and every one of us. It's not just Paul, but each and every one of us because of who we are in Christ. And because we have been given the stewardship of the gospel. We are indebted to Christ and we are under obligation to Christ and to the laws to take the gospel to the nations. And notice there too, and I won't spend much time on this, but notice what he says there. I'm under obligation both to Greek and to barbarians. In other words, what are you saying there? I'm under obligation to both the educated and the sophisticated and the ignorant and the unlearned. I am under obligation both to wise, those who have school, those who have been to school and have the, that higher education. I'm under, I'm under obligation to them, and I'm under obligation to the lowest of the lowest and the humblest of the humble. Paul says, I'm under obligation to all, everyone. Dear friend, we're not just under obligation to those who look like us, act like us, or belong to the same socioeconomical class that we belong to. We are under obligation to all. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we are under obligation. Second, we should be eager evangelists because we can be confident in the gospel. We can be confident in the gospel. That's what Paul says there in, in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now I remember as a child growing up and, uh, and if I would go and misbehaving, right, do something wrong and my dad would come in, Richard, son, and when I knew that I had done wrong, when I knew I was at fault, what did I do? Drop my head, right? Yes, Dad. Yes, yes. Because I was ashamed. I was ashamed at what I had done. You know, there's a lot of Christians who are ashamed of the gospel. So you're a Christian? Yes. Yeah, I'm a Christian. What hope do you have? Jesus. Is that how you feel? When the subject of sharing your faith with the lost comes up, do you drop your head in shame? Are you ashamed of the gospel? There's no need to be ashamed of the gospel. We should have absolute confidence in the gospel. 
And Paul had absolute confidence in the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am confident of the gospel. He demonstrates his, his confidence in the gospel with his life. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 through 27, Paul kind of recounts some of, some of his life in service to the gospel. He says, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Paul did all of that. Why? Why did he put himself through all of that? Why did he allow all of that to happen to him? Because he was confident. Not ashamed, but confident in the power of the gospel. Dear friend, we should be confident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need not to be be ashamed but we should have ever confidence all confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ so how can you have such confidence in the gospel well as Paul continues on here he, he explains that he works that out a little bit more he has that statement I'm not ashamed of the gospel but then he goes on and says for in other words because He's going to continue to work this out and show why he's not ashamed of the gospel, why he is confident in the gospel. And the first reason he says, therefore, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. We should be confident in the gospel. We should be eager to evangelize because the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. Everyone, everyone, there's not a class left out. He says to the Jew first and also the Greek, Paul says, everyone, it's the power of God unto salvation for all, everyone who believes. Now notice what he says there. Notice what, what, what he's talking about. It is the power of God. It is the power of God. Let me tell you, dear friend, when you go and share the gospel with someone, when you go and you speak the gospel to someone, those are not mere words. They're not mere words. Now I can explain to you how this works or that works, and those would be mere words, right? I could tell you how to tune a guitar. Those are mere words. But the gospel is not mere words. The gospel is power. And not just any power. It's God's power. That's why Jesus says, go to all the nations, make disciples of all the nations, baptize them and teach them, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As we go proclaim the gospel, Jesus says, I am with you. 
when we speak the gospel. We don't speak under our own authority. We don't speak under our own power. But we speak with the power of God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Now notice there it is, the power of God unto salvation. It's unto salvation, and it's to all who believe. So it's, it's clarified there. It's not just to everyone. It's not the power of God unto salvation to all, but it's all who believe, all who come to faith in Jesus. So what does it mean then that is the power of God for salvation to all who believe? What is he talking about there? What is he talking about? It is the power of God unto salvation. And this brings us to our fourth and final reason for eagerness. Four reasons every Christian should be eager. We are under obligation to proclaim the gospel. We can be confident in the gospel. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. And number four... We, can be, we should be eager evangelists because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed by faith. This brings in that word there. Uh, it is the power of God for salvation. Right? Salvation. Uh, that brings that question, what do we need salvation from? What do we need saved from? It indicates here, Paul goes on to work it out in, at length in the, the next few chapters of the book of Romans. But what does it mean that we need salvation? And dear friend, we see in Scripture that we have, been, we have rebelled against God. We don't desire God. We don't seek God. In fact, let me go on there in verse 18 of chapter 1 and just read a little ways into this. And Paul kind of begins to explain this, to work it out a little bit more. For the wrath of God, that is the righteous judgment of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, and unrighteousness of men. Who, okay, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, though they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinkings, and their foolish hearts were darking, darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, as we go outside and we look at the beauty of God's creation, we can see God's signature written all over it. When we look at the complexity of creation, we can see, if we're absolutely honest with ourselves, we can see that that's no mistake. That's not just something that happened. 
I mean, for the world to be created, the world to come into existence with, with all of its complexities. The evolutionists would say, well, that was just a, an accident. There was a big bang and, every, bang and everything come into being and, and, and humans just came out of this primordial ooze. But when you look at the facts and begin to think, what is the likelihood that the universe could come into creation with all of its complexities with just a, a, an explosion? How can the human body be formed, just form itself after, out of this genetic mistake and that genetic mis mistake to make the, comp the complex human body? If you're really honest with yourself, when you're looking at all that, if you're really honest with yourself, you would say there is no way. The evidence is there that God is our creator, that he created all things, and he deserves honor and glory for creating us. But we look at God and say, I would rather believe that lie about evolution and the trust in God. Because if I trust in God, that means I've got to come under His leadership. I'd rather not even think about God. I'd rather not even think that He exists or do anything about it because that means if Jesus is true, if what the Bible teaches about Jesus is true, that doesn't mean that I just get, get by by coming to church. It doesn't mean I just get by by doing my own thing. That means I have to surrender to Him. So mankind, we would all rather listen to a lie, receive the lie, believe the lie, so that we can serve ourselves, continue on in our own delights, our own pleasures, and the trust in God. And Paul says, we are under God's wrath. We are under God's wrath because of our disobedience, because of our rebellion, because we traded the glory of God, the wonderful glory of God for material things. We deserve the wrath of God. And today there's some, I believe that's even here, in this place, you are under the wrath of God. Because you'd rather listen to the lie, believe the lie, than trust God. You need salvation. You need to be saved from your sin. You need to be saved and pulled out of your rebellion. And you need to be reunited with God. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. For in it, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. You see, that's what we need. That's what we are desperately in need of. Scripture tells us the only way that we can stand before God and not receive His wrath is that we have perfect righteousness that is that we have a perfect right standing before God but we are all sinners none of us are righteous not even one Paul goes on in chapter 3 to tell us 
There are none who are righteous. None, none seek after God. We have all turned away to our own way. Like sheep we have gone astray, each to his own way. That's who we are. We don't have our own righteousness, but we need perfect righteousness. And Paul says in the gospel, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation because in the gospel, the righteousness of God, the perfect righteousness that we need to stand before God is revealed from faith for faith. Notice that word there, revealed. It is revealed. It's not something that we can gain ourselves. It's not something that, that we have uh, access to on our own. But Paul says it is the, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. It is revealed. It's made available. In other words, this is something that God gives. It's not a righteousness that we have. It's not a right standing that we have. It's outside of us. It's alien to us. It belongs to another. It belongs to God. And God reveals it. He gives it by faith. That's what that little phrase there means, by faith, uh, from faith, for faith. From faith, for faith. It simply means that it's, it's by faith from beginning to end. It's a little uh, a Greek idiom that he's using there. It means that it, it's all by faith. You can't gain the righteousness of God on your own. You can't gain the righteousness that you need to stand before the judge of judge, judges on that day. But God has graciously revealed it. He gives it freely by faith through Jesus Christ. See, that's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is this, that we sinners against the holy, holy, glorious God. We have rebelled against Him. We have bucked His leadership. We have been self-consumed, self-exalting. We are sinners. And God in His love for us sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to, be, to come to this earth and become like one of us. Because He was divine, He lived His life without sin. Without ever compromising his morality, without ever going against what the Father had commanded. He followed the Father's will to the very end. And because he was 100% man, he was able to go to Calvary's cross. And though he was without sin, he was able to freely give himself to be sacrificed, to receive the, the wrath of God due to a sinner on our behalf. He died for us. He took our unrighteousness and He put it on Himself and He received the punishment for our unrighteousness. And He was raised again. To show that every ounce of sin had been paid for. And he gives the gift of his perfect righteousness to those who believe. 
those who have faith. Now, what is faith? Let me just say this briefly. Let me explain it real briefly. Faith is this. It's three parts to faith. Saving faith. First, there is a knowledge. There's a mental knowledge. You have to know who Jesus is. You have to know the gospel. You have to know just what I said. You got to know the gospel. Second, there's a heart response to the gospel. There's a heart response. There's a movement of the affections. Your, your affections, your love, your passions have been all on you. Your wants, your desires. But you see Jesus. Oh, the beauty of Jesus, the wonder of his gift, and your affections must be moved off of yourself to love Jesus. And third, there's the commitment. There's a commitment. There's a surrendering of self to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what faith is. It's not just knowing facts, though you have to know the facts. It's a movement of the heart and a commitment of your life to Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this about faith. Faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a uh, uh, speculative thing, for faith believes facts of which it is sure. It is not an unpractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny upon the truth of revelation. Faith is, is the eye which looks. Faith is the hand which grasps. Faith is the mouth which feeds upon Christ. Dear friend, we should be eager evangelists because we are under obligation to God and Christ and to the lost world to share the good news of Jesus Christ, the only new news that will save a soul. We should be eager evangelists because of our confidence in the gospel. And we should be eager evangelists because the gospel is the power of salvation unto all who believe. And we should be eager evangelists because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God that we need to stand before God is revealed by faith. Dear friend, reading an article this week and you know the United States we used to be number one in sending out missionaries and still by by number we are still number one we send out the America the evangelical church and America sends out more missionaries number wise than any other nation in the world but when you look at it per capita per capita how many missionaries are sent out per thousands, 1,000 believers, 1,000 professing Christians? The United States, the church in the United States plummets down 
not to the second position, not to the third position, but to the ninth position. We used to be at top, but the church in America has dropped to number nine per capita. Beat out, first of all, number one is Palestine, followed by Ireland, Malta, and Samoa. We are number nine. And guess what country receives more missionaries than any other country? The United States. That means that though we once sent missionaries, we sent the gospel out to the nations, now the nations see a need to bring the gospel back to us. Dear friend, that's an, an indictment on the church in America. Because the church in America, we have been sitting around on our hands, content with the things of this world, instead of going out into the lost who are right around us and sharing with them the good news that Jesus saves. We've got to get off our hands, we've got to get on our feet. We got to do what God has called us to do to go, go, go. And see the lost come to Jesus Christ. What are we doing, church? How are we doing? We've got to change things. We've got to change things. We've got to turn things around. People are dying all around us without Christ in their life and they're going to hell. And we've got the news that could save them. Oh dear friend, let's get up. Throw out your complacency. Throw out your shame. See the Gospel. Grasp the Gospel. And take the Gospel out to the nations who are all around us. Oh, this church should be filled. Let us be faithful. Let us be faithful. For you who are here today, you don't know the gospel. You've never turned to Christ. Maybe you've never heard the gospel fully until today. Or, or maybe you've just never had that connection. It's just not connected, but today the Lord has connected it. Oh, there's nothing to do. There's no, no, no regiment to go through. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Have faith in Christ, what He has done for you. Give your life over to Him. And He will save you. Oh, Heavenly Father. Oh, Lord. I'll confess, Lord, my own sin before You. But Lord, I know I've not had the zeal. I haven't had the eagerness in my life that I ought to have had. Lord God, I pray your forgiveness. Forgive me, O oh Lord. And work in my heart a zeal for, for your glory. 
and your gospel. Lord, as a church, if we're to answer honestly, Lord, we've been following, falling short. Oh, Lord, work in our hearts. Work in our hearts. The lost are dying around us. Make us eager in the gospel, eager to evangelize. Give us power, O oh God, so that if the, the lost go to hell, they go to hell over our dead bodies. Give us a heart for the gospel and give us a heart for the lost that we would go out and do what you have called us to do. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.